Hello and welcome to Phenomena. I'm host Sandra Cariglio. Phenomena is a podcast by Red Associates, a strategy consultancy rooted in the social sciences. Today's episode is about collaboration, particularly collaboration across radically different disciplines. So the sound you're listening to right now is created by an instrument called a synthesizer. It was co-invented by engineer and physicist Robert Moog and musical composer Herb Deutsch. The synthesizer has since been used by musicians from the Beatles to John Cage. So why am I telling you all this? The synthesizer is one example of many cross-boundary collaborations that can lead to breakthrough results. What happens when the mind of an engineer meets the mind of a musician is an invention that revolutionized popular culture as we know it. On today's podcast, we will get to speak with a team consisting of researchers across different methods. Through our conversation, we will explore what kinds of problems require interdisciplinary collaboration and how teams get it right. My colleagues at RED recently formed a highly collaborative team with a group of different research scientists at Facebook Reality Labs. The team consisted of experts in anthropology, cognitive sciences, and machine learning, and they were tasked with working on the very early development of new smart devices. Currently, our smart devices react the same regardless of whether we're stressed out or relaxed. Across the industry, developing technology with the contextual awareness to handle these kinds of situations is seen as a bit of a holy grail. So Red and Facebook Reality Labs teamed up to ask, what would it take to make the next generation of devices truly smart? To answer this question, the team studied a truly mundane activity, cooking at home. The team was interested in understanding how people's attention and mental effort fluctuate during a routine task. So we have some of the team members gathered here today, some in person, some over the phone. Could each of you please introduce yourself briefly uh, and your background, oh, sure. please? My name is Maria Curry. Uh, I'm a senior manager at Red Associates, and my training is in anthropology. Uh, most of my projects in the past few years have focused on technology and understanding the role of technology in everyday life. Yeah, hi. My name is Federica Schuer, and I'm a data scientist and machine learning researcher. So I have a background in neuroscience. My name is Erin Whitworth. I was at Facebook as an ethnographer in the ARVR org. And for this project, I'm facilitating uh, the major collaboration between all the parties involved. So we have people on this team bringing in expertise from anthropology, machine learning, and neuroscience. That's a really diverse crowd. Why did this project necessitate such an interdisciplinary team? So this project was about helping a machine understand context the way that an ethnographer would or um, a trained social scientist would. Honestly, ethnography alone may not be directly applicable. I would often put my own discipline's perspective a little bit on a pedestal, and there's really no room for that in this kind of work because it only allows us to solve problems that our own discipline is able to solve, and this was a problem that was too big for any one of those disciplines. Yeah, so as a data scientist, machine learning engineer, I I know how to work with data, but I didn't quite know how to approach messy reality. To just give one example, there's a study that came out that sort of shows that uh, 
facial recognition systems, which happen in the news for many reasons, but one of the reasons is they, they don't work quite as well for people of color, and they're particularly bad, so they don't really work for women of color. And then people sort of went, like, oh, why is that? And they started to look at the data that are used to train these systems, and they found that uh, these data sets primarily include pictures from white people <laughs> and a lot of men. But that made me sort of wonder, okay, what else is not in the data and how is that affecting what I build, uh, the products that I release, the conclusions that I come to. And, and so uh, I got a little uncomfortable, actually, with sort of my own discipline there. And so I actually really, really wanted to collaborate specifically with people with expertise in these kinds of areas because I was looking to learn. It sounds like this was a kind of project where it was necessary to understand things from very different angles. And everyone came to the table for seeing the limitations of one's own field of study. And for more details on the research itself, can you tell me why you all decided to study cooking? We knew that uh, combining disciplines, we needed to choose something that could be treated almost like a natural laboratory, right? So in everyday life, Where is a site where uh, lots of people have to interact and, and we can hold some things this constant, but there will be a lot of naturalism to it. One element of cooking that also made this really interesting to study purely from a sort of task planning and management perspective, which I think is sort of a perspective that a cognitive scientist would, uh, would take. It's like with cooking, you're not entirely uh, in control. Um, the onions will need a certain time to cook. Like maybe you set the fire a little bit too high. Maybe they cook a little bit faster than you expected. You might burn something just a tiny bit, you know, and, and so you have to actually be really precise in how you plan your action, how you do your timing, especially if you're sort of like splicing in secondary activities. I think it was a, a great activity to study um, because it's something that is is just consistent enough that you can compare it. And so we had enough similarity where we could see the differences um, in how people were experiencing context at an individual level. You could have two people that, you know, two separate people that uh, have come home on a Tuesday night and it's dark outside and they're getting ready to cook. And for one person, uh, they love cooking. They actually hate their day job and they want to be an aspiring chef. And so cooking brings them great pleasure and they want to grow with how they cook. They want to improve uh, and eventually quit their job and be a chef. And then uh, another person absolutely hates cooking and it just adds to the stress of their day and they're standing up and they're tired, you know, uh, and then they start thinking about other things uh, because, you know, they hate the act of cooking. Um, and so what's going on inside a person's head as they're cooking can be completely different from another person, even though if we were to just kind of objectively look at it from the outsider's perspective, they're, they're doing the same thing. For the project team locally in Seattle, the things that you just laid out there, Maria, the, the fact that an individual's experience of cooking might be so different was a huge realization for this team. And maybe that's not necessarily shocking from like an anthropological perspective that people from different walks of life will approach a task differently. But for, for our team, it really opened up our eyes. Yeah. Um, one thing that I don't want to give the impression that we went into the field to study cooking and it was all great and we knew exactly what we were going to study because I think it was 
a lot more fraught than that. We each had our own idea about how to study it because our disciplines have a very particular take on how how to study people doing an activity. But when you get all of us in a room together and try to sort out what methods to use, it's, it's a whole other story. That's a great bridge into my next question. One of the interesting tensions about collaboration is when it reveals some deeper philosophical differences between two disciplines or two approaches to research. For instance, the way an anthropologist might think of the importance of context in research is quite different from the way a biologist, for instance, thinks of you know, a controlled context in a lab. So you might argue that one is based on an idea that people can only be studied really as profoundly embedded in a world of meaning, while the other is based on the idea that uh, people are best studied in isolation from um, factors that would muddy um, an experiment. So I'm curious, were there any moments where you felt like those two different philosophies really clashed? Um, and how did you reconcile them? I mean, I would say throughout, we were constantly having to define for one another terms and concepts that we, in our individual disciplines, kind of took for granted. Um, so I think practitioners in all kinds of fields value data, right? Um, we all want to be data-driven, but we each had a different definition for what data was and what data looked like. So for some of us, it was rich observations, kind of these messy notes from the field. And for others, it was very uh, structured kind of numbers uh, that were collected uh, in a very rigorous and systematic way. And uh Frederica, you had a really good point. Um, we were talking about basically the aesthetics of data in a way, how, how sometimes one person's uh, data can look or feel kind of ugly to someone else. For us, we were constantly kind of uh, trying to show uh, our collaborators what data was like um, and kind of getting one another acquainted with uh, different types of data. Yeah, it's, it's funny you bring that up, but I think it's, it's true. I think the biggest difference is that, uh, you know, in my work, I sit in front of a computer and I look data that is stored on the computer and um, figuring out how to work with the data that to me just seemed very unwieldy. Like, what do you do with an interview? You know, I mean, uh, literally the, the way how I typically like work with my data is I, I write a piece of code that loads it in memory of a computer and then I like munch things around, you know. I think also um, acquire almost like an aesthetic judgment of what feels beautiful and what feels right right and so like um if you come from a more sort of experimental discipline and like my training is in neuroscience like i got a lot of training in how to set up very well controlled experiments where you're essentially trying to design the context in a way that you can draw very firm conclusions but then those experimental designs to me i experience them as beautiful um and so i think that uh, that can be quite challenging to actually sort of then communicate across these sort of like aesthetic judgments that uh, go along with sort of professional judgment, right? Building on some of that, I uh, part of the collaboration was really defining what language was going to help us structure our look into the world. So there's this meso layer of language that was actually really important. And a, a site of the collaboration was defining, you know, how would we understand a term like environment and how is that different than social interaction? How do those two um, concepts interact when we're talking about context? 
So the communication around what data you need and what data even looks like in each of your respective fields was a challenge. But it sounds like despite the challenge, everyone eventually aligned on the kind of data this team wanted to collect. So I'm curious, once data was gathered, were there any challenges in analyzing data across different disciplines? So the moment where everyone came back from the field and there were like 12 of us and everyone an expert in their own right, in, in their own area of training with a perspective on how the data should be analyzed. And we just could not agree at first on how to start analyzing this data. And having these discussions about, well, you know, what if we did this quantitative analysis on these numbers that we gathered in the data? And like, no, 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 like we need to first, you know, start by describing what we saw in the field in, a, in, in these, you know, very sensorial and embodied way. And then, no, 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 like we need to have the data fit into these uh, categories and structures because eventually it's going to feed into something that is structured. And these conversations would go on and on and um, kind of knowing when to shift between talking about how to do something and just actually trying it out and then coming back and saying, like, did that work or did that not work? And I think um, we were all a bit too hesitant at first to uh, decide on one particular approach and tackle it and try it out and see if it worked. Um, and that was just a learning process um, for all of us and for me especially of uh, rather than talking about doing something, just doing it, trying it, uh, taking one approach um, for a little bit of time and then coming back and reevaluating and trying something else. It stood out to me that when we performed different analyses on this data set um, and, and found, you know, that uncomfortable moment of working with data that doesn't feel familiar to you, that it needed to tell a larger picture that, that like, the different data types compl complemented one another and what stood out to me was the um, complementarity of the findings, actually. When we took different approaches to the data, it still told a larger story that was coherent and consonant with the different data types, as well as um, the orthodoxies that were sort of uh, foregrounded to complete that analysis. And they led to similar avenues, and that, to me, tells tells me we're onto something um, that uh, is reliable because we're, we're actually using different methods to get at uh, this, this uh, complex data set and finding something that makes sense. Yeah, and I think one of the learnings for us as a team was to focus on what best answers the research question as opposed to doing what the the discipline that you're coming from would how the how your discipline would normally approach that question. It's putting the research question first and then finding the best methods for addressing those questions. And also mixing methods in ways where methods that would be pristine in your home discipline gets kind of uh, muddied when it's brought into this hybrid space. Can you give me an example of that, of going out and mixing methods? 
So the way fieldwork happened is we first spent some time getting to know our participants as we normally would do with ethnography. We uh, talked to them about their ambitions in life, their struggles, what their day-to-day routines are like. Um, For example, Marcus, who's a med student, we did this in the context of kind of catching him for lunch between one lecture and another and then meeting up with him after he was done with lecture and commuting with him back home to kind of get a sense of what it's like to be him. And then when we got to uh, Marcus's apartment, we set up the space, which is where things start to get a bit different from how ethnography is typically conducted, uh, where we try to not be very uh, invasive or disruptive. We uh, instead made it look a little bit like a lab in that way. We set up cameras uh, around the space. Uh, We set up cameras to record both the room that we were in as well as the kind of first-person perspective perspective of what is Marcus looking at. So imagine a camera kind of capturing what he's what he's looking at. So um, if you are studying you know, mental effort and how people experience an activity in a lab setting, labs are not very social. You have a defined activity and you do that activity and then there's a result and you perform good or bad. Uh, but we had people cooking in the midst of their kids running around or um, or wondering when someone was going to text them back, a romantic interest or something like that. And um, the, the role that social dynamics played, even when someone was cooking alone, we did not anticipate. And I think it was having that setup that got us to that. Yeah, so one of the things that we did was we collected a pass score that's actually named after a prison, <laughs> Fred Pass, I believe. Um, and that is a, a sort of standardized way of probing people for how much mental effort they're currently spending. And this comes entirely from neuroscience. Um, and so we did something really, it sounds so funny, participants got used to it eventually, but we, we probed them every few minutes or so, how much mental effort are you currently spending. And so we would ask the question and then they would say five and then we would say why and then they would give us like a few words in most cases. Yes. So just to recap what you guys actually did, I heard from the team that you coined this method called pass plus why. So you went beyond the traditional pass score and used it in a way to capture more contextual data, allowing you to observe the gap between what people say versus what they do. Yeah, that was crucial. We needed to use the introductory interviews and understand their lived context in order to make sense of some of these numbers that we collected. Something that stood out for me was there was an in-home in the Seattle area. We had a moment with this participant where uh, she gave a score of eight, right? And uh, it was a score under duress. She thought she heard a gunshot, um, and that was something that had recently sort of traumatized her and her family. But then later in that day of observation, she gives a score of eight again, and the reason is because she's delighted and excited by making this slime material with her daughter, this glitter, unicorn glitter poop, which you should should definitely look up. It's amazing. Uh, because she's delighted by the activity. And so, like, we had to start to understand how um, the raw score that someone provides um, is sort of contextualized in a larger picture of their, of their life, as well as what, the, what mental effort looks like in different kinds of, um, you know, sort of positive or negative uh, situations. 
That's interesting. It sounds like this team successfully went out and mixed methods by creating an environment that is in between a controlled lab and natural everyday life, and by systematically documenting mental effort in a new way that combines scoring and contextual notes. We hear about collaboration across disciplines more and more, but it seems like there's countless examples of people getting it wrong. Why do you think this team was particularly successful? Yeah, I think for me the uh, what made it all work was um, a willingness to break the rules uh, of what standard practices are, of what best methodologies are to tackle a problem. It was a willingness to, uh, yeah, break break some disciplinary rules. Yeah, we were we were joking at one point that uh, we know we're doing it right if everyone is feeling just a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> with what we were doing because then at that point we sort of felt that everyone had to had to make certain sort of like compromises um, and, and not sort of pursue just the, the sort of like uh, clarity and, and framework that comes out of their own discipline. I think uh, the kind of old ways of talking about how valuable we are and how you can't discount, you know, anthropological work, that could have been one of our greatest hindrances. So it's kind of like moving from this protectionist perspective to a perspective where you're actually welcoming the challenge of, of creating space for other disciplines. Amazing. Thank you all for joining this discussion. So what did we learn? Interdisciplinary collaboration has a long history, dating back to the synthesizer and beyond but it remains a struggle for modern workforces to break specialists out of their silos. However, as teamwork between Red and Facebook reality shows, it can be done with a bit of patience, humility, and ingenuity. Teams will need to mix methods and create compromises that are initially uncomfortable, but ultimately open rich new territory. Even fundamental terms like what exactly is meant by data may need to be re-examined. And teams will need to show willingness to grab methods from one toolbox and combine them with elements from another. It's a very iterative process. If you want to solve a question as complex as understanding how someone's mind moves during a busy hour of cooking, or any other rich, human-focused research topic your organization is exploring, then only using one discipline probably won't be sufficient. You'll have to learn how to bring together people from different fields and collaborate but the results can be as beautiful as an entirely new sound.